Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will. You guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, always challenge the status quo. Uh, that always needs challenging. But you guys already know what we're doing here. Like and subscribe if you want to see more. Um, feel free to leave us a five-star review on iTunes and also Spotify now. That's super fun. Um, we're today we are continuing our review of the Potter's Freedom by James White um, with David Pullman. Now, some of you guys might know already, but so Brian was going to join us. He actually was like trucking through that book. And um, unfortunately, his father-in-law passed away unexpectedly. So now he uh, he's a little he was preoccupied with that. He had to go to the funeral Saturday and he's still taking care of his family. But Brian told me to go ahead and go forward with tonight, which uh, is sad in many ways. Uh, but don't worry, um, Stacy's dad did know the Lord, so he is um, he is there now with with, with him. So, um, in fact, the entire uh, funeral was all about um, how much he loved Christ and how much he used uh, his even his trade and his skills to tell people about Christ. So it was really great, all good stuff. So uh, Brian says hello. You guys will have to deal with my new co-host, David Paulman, who I think is now replacing Brian. So uh, <laughs> um, anyway, so with that being said, we're going to continue on with this a little bit. But first, I want to welcome you, David. Oh, and before I go on any further, any audio listeners, this is a live broadcast, so it might not be as pish and posh as other things I like to do. But anyway, we'll make this work. How you doing, David? I'm doing excellent. Thanks so much for having me on again, Will. I'm, I'm so happy to be the new co-host here on the Church Split. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> the salary pays amazing. That's why we do it, right? That's why everyone's in the ministry. It's all about the money. It's all about the money, unless you're Copeland, in which that case that might be true. Um, <laughs> so uh, Snowy Owl was wondering if our intro was purposely trying to irritate fundamentalists. Uh, that very well might be true. Also, hello, Micah, long time no see. Um, so, all right. So we're going to move forward with this. Um, we, I know White has done a few uh, responses and... It is funny seeing so many Yahoo responses, if we can. Um, it is funny seeing what some of uh, people have thought uh, White has said and the things that he actually didn't say, the things that he apparently were debunked that actually really weren't debunked. Um, also, I love seeing rebuttals to jokes. So when you take my jokes super seriously, um, I love seeing that. It makes my day great. But anyway, so we're not, I mean, honestly, we're just going to keep moving forward. Uh, we're going to keep tracking. You don't have to agree with us, by the way. If we, you think we're too spicy, if you think that we're, we were too, like, we joke around too much, we, you know, whatever. Okay. I, that's on you, man. Uh, we're we're going to keep doing our thing. But right now we are um, going through chapters eight and nine. We broke it up because, guys, uh, this there is a lot in this book, and I would take I could take six years to respond to every little thing that I have issue with. Uh, but point is, is I'm taking excerpts. Uh, that was one of the critiques that was made is that we're taking excerpts. But bottom line is, Dr. White pulls excerpts from Chosen But Free. I don't know how any other way you review a book without reading the entire thing uh, out loud. So. Um, yeah, and also Micah was wondering if we got the second edition yet. Not here. 
<laughs> I do not. Actually, Brian ordered the second edition, and what came in the mail was the first edition. He even showed <laughs> me the order receipt. It's like it shows like his second edition cover, and then the first edition came in. He's like, "Well, guess what's predestined." <laughs> so, um, yeah. Honestly, for me, I, I was able to get a fairly cheap copy of the first edition, and I just I didn't want to pay um, the money to get the second edition. So, I mean, you could blame it on me uh, if you see this. Mr. White, I'm just cheap and you know, I don't value your work highly enough to like pay that much for it. So I have no problem Whoa. admitting that. <laughs> well, I mean, in all honesty, you're also a college student who, you know, works at Dillard, so every dollar counts. <laughs> and it also means my opinion doesn't matter. Yes, exactly. So it doesn't matter, none of this matters. Um, so with that being said, we're gonna just we're gonna jump in. I have a lot of thoughts on chapter eight, um, and I know you do as well. So uh, I have retitled chapter eight. It, chapter eight says unconditional election. I have retitled it as mankind is not valuable enough to save. Nice. I thought that was a fair way to address that. Um, because if you are saying that God, because one of the biggest arguments that Calvinists use against anyone who believes that the free will of man and that mankind has to make an active choice to follow God, they will say, so salvation hinges on man, right? So they'll say, so really, salvation is of man, not of God. Well, likewise, if you're saying that God can save everybody through irresistible grace, God can forcibly choose people, um, you're also saying that they're not valuable enough to save because you only saved some. So I'm just, if we're, if we're okay with straw manning, I'm going to throw that out there. Although I think mine actually logically follows. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, go ahead and kick us off, David, with some of your thoughts here. All right. Yep. Starting off, uh, you know, with misrepresenting other points of view, because that's, that's generally the first category I class things under, just because that's usually what ends up happening first. Um, <clears throat> page 173, quote, the final ultimate deciding factor in election is the free acceptance of the human being. This is glaringly obvious, and it is fully Arminian, end quote. So certainly man's free acceptance is a determining factor within Arminian theology. Apart from faith, no one is going to be elected. But it is not the determining factor since actually multiple factors come into play regarding election, including the father's choice to provide salvation, the son's choice to become obedient unto death, the spirit's choice to convict sinners, and God's choice to elect a sinner when they believe. This last factor, more than anything else, should be considered the determining factor in election. So it always bothers me when Calvinists, you know, try to say that uh, Arminians believe that faith is the determining factor, like there's only one. Like, no, no, there's there's um, several determining factors there. Yeah, there's so, multiple yes. facets to salvation and the atonement. You can't just say that, it, bring it down to the free will of man. Because, uh, but of course, they'll say, well, it wasn't effectual salvation until the person made the choice. No, it's the condition, which is funny because the name of the chapter is unconditional election, but the condition literally in scripture is to have faith. Yeah. So um, it's just, anyway, like you said, it's bothersome. But one of the other things I wanted to point out is in the part before this, he says that. Um, all forms of Calvinism and Arminianism believe that God is the one who initiated salvation even before the world began, Ephesians 1.4. Is this, and he's quoting, I think, Geisler here. So, well, yeah, he says, while attempting to respond to the assertions of Romans 9.16, we, we read, and this is 
Geisler's words, all forms of Calvinism and Arminianism believe that God is the one who initiated salvation, even before the world began, Ephesians 1.4. So then White retorts and says, is this indicating that the specific act of choosing people before the foundation of the world is to be understood as merely initiating? Um, and this is, uh, if we're going to talk about misrepresenting other people's views, uh, he, White is operating under the fact that God chooses people before the foundation of the world. So he kind of puts those words into his mouth because he's trying to use Ephesians 1, 4 as a proof text against um, uh, Geisler. So then he goes on and says that Paul in Romans 9, 16 says, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And uh, we'll get to Romans 9 here in a little bit. We're not going to be able to do a full exegetical approach to Romans 9. That alone is its own episode, which I am planning very soon. Um, but too often, Calvinists make scripture verses like that soteriological when they're not necessarily. That is one of the things here, like as far as the will of man versus the will of God who has mercy. Um, they're like, well, it must mean that therefore will God... Uh, mankind has no will involved in the soteriological method. And I'm, I'm just going to be honest, some verses that are used as proof texts for uh, Calvinist beliefs as soteriological, some of them are just not soteriological. And we're just uh, inserting a soteriological structure in there. Um, anyway, any thoughts on anything right there so far? Uh, well, not, not on that specific quotation. Uh, okay. But yeah, uh, we all had some thoughts on uh, his use of 2 Timothy 1.9, or specifically his comments on 2 Timothy 1.9. White says, quote, This grace is specific and efficacious, grace that actually saves. If the elect received this grace in Christ before eternity, then the Arminian position that God's grace is given to all equally and in final effectiveness is left to the time-bound free choices of men is impossible. Page 179. So in this, uh, you know, I think that's White's attempt to characterize the Arminian doctrine of prevenient grace, and he just misunderstands it. The doctrine does not say that God's grace is, you know, quote, given to all uh, equally and in final effectiveness, you know, but that's left to the, the time-bound choices of men. Uh, Arminians would distinguish between two categorically different types of grace. There's prevenient grace, which precedes faith, and then there's saving grace, which follows faith. And both types of grace are effectual with respect to their intended goals. So prevenient grace is intended to enable faith in Christ. This is always effectual in enabling sinners to believe, though I hasten to add that this does not guarantee that they will believe. Saving grace is intended to save those who believe, and it is always effectual in saving a believer. So as for 2 Timothy 1.9, Arminians interpret that as describing saving grace and not prevenient grace. So White has really missed a vital distinction here, and I think on that basis his argument here falls flat. Well, so one of the things that you are saying here is that uh, Arminians actually make a distinction between the grace of God, right? So that's what you're essentially saying, that there's a distinction here. Much like the Calvinists will make um, a distinction in the will of God, right? So that there is less, it, it, oftentimes you'll even hear reference to a secret will of God. So I think it's important that before somebody goes, well, pff, that's not a scripture, that, hey, that, that, that sword cuts both ways. Uh, that, okay, so scripture might not say, this is, what, this is grace one, this is grace two, but scripture also doesn't say this is will number one, will number two. Okay, so I just know that some people I've heard pick that apart. Um, and I just wanted to make sure I mentioned the fact that, hey, we all build categorical differences 
all the time from the text, right? So, right, and sometimes it becomes necessary, right? Like when you have texts that talk about, uh, you know, grace of God that draws all people, right, or that um, is intended to lead people to repentance and such, right? We have texts that very clearly tell us that God draws all people to salvation, and yet we would all agree, uh, well, except for the universalists, right, that everyone is not going to be saved. So there is a type of universal prevenient grace. But then we also believe that God actually saves those who he intends to save, right? So you actually need the distinction at that point if you're going to avoid contradiction, right? And this is the same way that we arrive at, like, doctrines like the Trinity and such. So, I mean, it's a perfectly legitimate way of doing systematic theology and biblical theology is to create distinctions when needed. Right. And so, and it, you know, I think my view on that is simply that God gives grace to all mankind uh, to respond and that's those who choose to believe, believe, and they are saved. So it's pretty simple. Um, and I also wanted to mention, as far as mischaracterization of other people's viewpoints, there's also mischaracterization of, of your fellow brothers a little bit on page 172 when he says that the, he's referring to the historic uh, reform position. But I think you already know this, and you said that we're not going to get into this too much, but uh, I pretty much I have written a note I'm like isn't Arminianism technically a reformed position like, <laughs> like like by historical standards I'm I'm no I'm no expert but I'm pretty sure that Arminianism is considered uh uh reformed so but we, but we don't know anything about you know reformation history we've got to listen to James White's gazillion part uh you know series lecturing on the history of the reformation it's yeah once I listen anything. to this 80 part series that I'll be able to speak about it. So, um, cause I'll totally find time for that. Uh, so, and, uh, in Romans eight twenty, then he also mentions, um, that right here, um, that, so, okay, real quick. So I'm going to quote him. He goes immediately after this comment, Romans eight twenty eight is cited and the response is the same. So he's talking about a, a response earlier above. And he says that this is Geiser's response that these and like texts show the unconditional nature of election from God's point of view is not challenged. But the question is not whether election is unconditional from the vantage point of the giver, but whether there are any conditions for the receiver. And so Geis was creating a distinction on this, but I just wanted to point out again that faith is the condition in scripture. So it is whether you know we can define that slightly differently that's fine but then in page 173 um i do agree with uh white here because uh he says he quotes geisler and then he says that from geisler's view that there really is no difference between saying god elects on the basis of foreknowledge or in accordance with it because geisler do you remember geisler tried to make that distinction of like oh there's a difference between on the basis of foreknowledge or in accordance to it in the final analysis and i will say this point for white i think white is correct i don't think there's much of a difference in that terminology the one of the things is is that some people misunderstand the fact that we don't give white points when he gets them but that's mainly because i'm talking about my issues with his book not my agreements but anyway continue yeah. forward my friend i apologize no 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 you're good and i yeah i mean once again we're not defending geisler by any means here um, no but yeah so we got a false dichotomy on page 173 quote it is the free choice of man not the free choice of god that determines who the elect are and that is supposed to be a description of um geisler's position obviously not not white's position uh, but it's frankly is a false dichotomy, right? Why can't it be both? Why can't God elect people on the basis of their faith in Christ? In this way, both actions are necessary. People's faith doesn't do anything by itself because God must respond by electing them. 
yet God's election will not be applied to them until they believe. In this way, both the act of God to elect and man's choice to believe determine who is elect. For the sake of clarity, it is God alone who elects. People are not electing themselves. But this divine action is conditional upon faith, such that individuals who uh, such that individuals do have a say in whether or not they are one of the elect. Correct. So, um, and that's why, I, again, that's what I was talking about earlier about the the Calvinist straw man. That if a free a free agent makes a decision, suddenly they're saying that oh, well, it's man that makes a determining factor. It's it's not. It's such a false dichotomy. It, it, there's and a false dichotomy is when you're just saying, all right, it's one of these two. It's got to be either God saves you or man saves. Who saves? And the bottom line is that there are a third and fourth and fifth option from that. It's not just those two things. If you want to try to, I guess, rudimentary boil it down to those things, that's your prerogative. But um, I don't think the rest of us have to be stuck in such a such a block, such a box. So. Right. And, and I would want to be careful to say I do think it is God alone who does um, the saving. But right. White is focusing on the choice, right? Whose choice is it that determines who's elect? And so even though we are all going to agree, I think that God is the one who does the electing, a person's choice is necessary because God's election is conditional rather than unconditional. And so basically this sort of way of setting things up almost begs the question in favor of an unconditional election perspective. Wait, you mean White set up a begging the question? <laughs> yeah, you can do that. I didn't. I never noticed. Um, <laughs> so, thus, all right. So, um, he goes. The, uh, he does say on page one seventy six. Thus, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in verse four, God here acts. He, his act is that of election. The Greek term, whatever, means that there's a delta. And I I am not even going to try to pronounce Greek because you, I already you know he'll trouble. be merciless to you if you try yeah, to if well, you mispronounce it. I mispronounced Benson already. Um, so I would hate for him to yell at me. So, all right, means to choose uh, or select. God is the subject of the verb. This is God's choice. The rest of the phrase gives us three vital pieces of information. The object of the choice, the sphere of the choice, and the time frame of the choice. This actually, I wanted to really, uh, I wanted to dig into this a little bit. Um, nobody, nobody says that it's not God's choice before the foundation of the world to save anybody. No one argues that. So this is one of those, uh, this is one of those things where, again, people fall for it because they'll be like, once people pull out Greek for whatever reason, if people are not familiar at all with linguistic terms, their brains just turn to mush and they're just kind of like, oh, okay, so I guess that means what it means. But the problem here is that the object is God, of course, the choice, of course, and the sphere, of course. But the question is, who are the elect? And how does one become elect? That is the question in that text. So again, to assume that Calvin, and again, he'll say that we're missing the entire argument because we're not reading the entire excerpt from the book. But this is a regular issue in uh, Calvinist text where they'll point to who the object is. It's like, yes, we all understand it. God cho chose. God chose to save mankind. God chose to send his son. No one disagrees. People disagree on the mechanisms. You mean white? White is refuting an argument that nobody made. Weird. Yeah, funny how that works, right? First time. <laughs> um, so, um, if certain, and then he goes on. If certain theories were correct, we might expect something like 
to save to so uh, instead uh, so instead of saying it to elect or he chose us in him before the foundation of the world he's saying that we might see the phrase to save instead if we are correct so that the passage would simply be that god chose to save or make salvation possible before the foundation of the world i'm going to call this out as an argument from silence because if you're looking at page 176, paragraph two, he's saying that, well, if it meant what we meant, what it means for, to us, then it should say that God chose to save or make salvation possible before the foundation of the world. You're making an argument from silence in this point because you, I think he knows that, that people can easily just say, no, 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 of course God chose. Of course he did. That's not the point. So now it's, it's an argument from silence. Um, not a good one. All right. So um, I have a lot of notes on page 177, so I'll let you uh, talk about something for a change. Okay, so yeah, uh, a charge of oversimplification here on page 175. Quote, let's allow the word to speak for itself. So despite his repeated requests for exegesis, White is apparently unaware that the Bible does not, quote, speak for itself. The Bible, as with all forms of communication, written or otherwise, has to be interpreted. Indeed, this is why there is a need for exegesis in the first place. Copying and pasting passages of scripture in a book uh, is not the same thing as defending that your reading of said passages is correct. It's just not. So White would really do well to learn this point because he frequently substitutes long walls of biblical text for an exegesis of those texts all the while assuming that his reading is just plainly obvious. And that's, I mean, it's something that we pointed out before, but I mean, it, it bears repeating, right? There is a need to interpret the Bible. The text does not speak for itself. It's just a myth that it does. Well, which is what's odd to me is when people say that, because then he does follow after that, and that's where my point, point here when he comes into um, attempts to exegete it with who, who the object is, who's the choosing. And it's like, that's not really an exegesis, though, because that's part of the standard grammar here. Um, so anyway, point is here, yeah, uh, what, that, that's always one of those, it's like one of those IFB things, let's let the word speak for itself, and then let me quote something, um, <laughs> as opposed to giving some rigorous discussion there. Um, so now I got to talk about page 177, because I have this thing, I don't know if you can see. Uh, I don't think you can, but anyway, lots of markings. So in page 177, uh, he says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. He's quoting Geisler there. So in love, he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So again, he continues, we find God is the subject of the action. Oh, wait, no, sorry. I apologize. He's not quoting Geiser. He's quoting scripture, uh, scripture. It's hard to see because we just have quotations. I don't see what he's quoting. It's not like it says verse four or verse whatever B. Um, so I'm, I go back and forth because sometimes he doesn't clarify in his formatting. I don't know if that's a me problem or a him problem, but it's a problem nonetheless. <laughs> All right. So but, but don't make it false dichotomy, Will. It can't, it can't be both. It can't be both. Okay, fair. <laughs> in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So he says right here, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And White says, again, we find God is the subject of the action in this verse. We are told what God has done and how he has done it, to whom he has done it, to what end it is done, and the means he used. 
But the thing is, is no one argues again against this. This is another one of those false arguments. No one is arguing that we, that God is the subject, that God predestines us to the adoption through Jesus Christ to himself. Again, the question is, is how is one predestined and how is one in adoption? That is the question here. So when, I mean, White can set this up however he would like, but right here, you cannot get around the fact that that no one argues this. Yeah. yeah. So he, he likes to make uncontroversial statements, right? Like salvation is of the Lord. Like he said something that's controversial. Like only Calvinists believe that or something. Well, because um, he he would believe that Calvinists are the only ones who truly believe it. So then he just presumes his statement is correct, particularly specifically only from his viewpoint. So it's again, to the it's choir begging, is what that's called. It's a begging the question thing, right? Yeah. I'm assuming my my position when I say God, salvation is of the Lord, I am just merely assuming that my position is correct because I I whatever. So anyway, um, on conditionality of election, I agree that white is overrated in the reform community. Sorry, I'm reading a comment here. James Williams says completely disagree with you on the conditionality of election. Agree that white is overrated in the reform community. Well, at least you agree with us there. Although I don't know how you disagree with us on the conditionality of the election, because I think we've only stated that faith is the condition. So it's fairly, which is fairly clear in scripture. Right. So, all right. Um, moving forward, uh, I, I like I said, I'm just going to go through my notes on page 177. So sorry if I have to like reread this uh, while I'm going and correct my statements. Um, so he says, but to what were Christians predestined? Okay, so now he's asking the question I asked before. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So then he just goes, God predestined not simply a plan, but an end. But again, no one says that they're not going through Jesus Christ. That adoption is sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Again, we're arguing about the mechanisms here. Um, so no one argues against this. The question is how. Abraham had faith and God counted it unto him as righteousness. Notice that how, how that is in the Old Testament. He had faith and God counted it unto him as righteousness. It's not that God gave him his faith. It's not that God irresistibly saved him. It's that Abraham had faith and God then counted it. Whether people like to admit it or not, there's a response there from God um, uh, based on the faith of Abraham. So, um, all right. And then he goes on, it should be noted that at this point, all the verbs in the passage have God as their subject. Men have not added an iota to the discussion outside of being adopted into the family of God, i.e. saved and that perfectly. And again, nobody argues that God is the subject. No one on planet Earth. This is why, like, this is why I say this book's not good. Uh, it's just because of these egregious like assumptions. Because uh, he told me recently, and uh, his response to us, duh. So I wrote, duh. But we see men uh, in other passages mentioned as well, because we do. You can't. Yes, this part is talking about God's aspect of it, right? God, pre God predestining an elect and an adoption. However, you. But predestination, uh, how is that defined? Is a good question. Um, but men are is mentioned in other passages, our responsibility. We see God's responsibility, then we see man's responsibility. Um, so uh, according to, um, so the phrase uh, answers many a question of, of humankind. Why has God chosen to save a particular people? And then he writes that in according to the kind intention of his will. 
That's the why. And he and he uses that. He'll even say that in the Greek, like the entire phrase in Greek. Why? Eutychia. The, <laughs> so, but the problem is, it's like, again, no one argues that it's not the kind intention of his will. In fact, I would argue that you can't say that it is kind intention of his will for him to damn half of mankind. We could have just saved them. And how is that kind will? It, uh, in what world is that kind? Yeah, yeah, the whole debate is like about, well, what is the kind intention of his will? Is that to save conditionally or unconditionally? And he's just assumed that kind intention of his will refers to unconditional election. Right. So um, anyway, I, like I said, I had a lot of notes on page 177 because it was continually God's the subject, God's the subject. Man has not done one iota here. I'm like, no, it's not talked about man in this part because God is the subject, as you have said. So it's discussing God's side of the salvation equation. So anyway, yeah. if you disagree with me, let me know. Otherwise, let's roll. All right. So uh, I got uh, some misreadings of scripture for this chapter. Uh, yeah, on Ephesians 1.4, right? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And White writes about that. <clears throat> Quote, Paul provides a personal direct object, making the choice personal and distinct. He chose us, not a nameless, faceless class or group, but us. Page 176 and repeat it again on page 177. Now, Back to the part that I was ranting about. Keep going. Right, right. White doesn't explicitly state that he is arguing against the corporate election interpretation of Ephesians 1, but I think that he means for this statement to function as such an argument. If so, then White is clearly displaying his ignorance regarding the theory of corporate election. Again, note that I did make that statement conditional. I'm not saying that he has misunderstood it because he's not clear on if that's what he's arguing against but it looks to me like he is. So corporate election affirms that particular individuals are indeed chosen, right? We're not denying that it's, it's personal, right? That, that's not the thesis of corporate election. Uh, but we would say that individuals are chosen secondarily by virtue of their connection to the elect people who are chosen through Christ. Such an interpretation fits quite well in Ephesians 1.4, as the verse explicitly identifies those chosen as being chosen because they are in Christ. So corporate election does maintain against white that uh, the us who are chosen is not it's not determinate, right? That is to say, the people who comprise the us, it fluctuates as people believe and fall away. But the group of believers is always chosen. And so it would be a mistake uh, to think that because the individuals who make up the chosen is not determinate, that therefore the individuals are faceless or nameless. White just doesn't seem to understand what he's arguing against here. No, and that and that usually happens. It's not even, I'm not sure if he doesn't understand it, but I think it is, I think he does. I think what it is that he purposely chooses to frame it in a way in favor to his own view. Um, that, and, but, and always be, you know, whenever you're debating someone, always be aware of that. The way that they frame the questions will often beg the question against you. Right, which is why sometimes you uh, just have to call it out and say, I deny the framing. Right. And I, you stopped beating your wife. Right. <laughs> right. That's a great example of a false frame. Like, wait, what? What? Um, you say, you know, you know, you're doomed if you say yes, doomed if you say no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Page 178. Uh, I have this whole part of White saying, we need to remember that first and foremost, God's action of saving man is an act of grace. Again, no one 
disagrees, but they define grace differently. Remember, it's irresistible. Um, so his will is not some dark and foreboding thing. The emphasis in scripture is always on the wonder that God could save at all. Never upon the idea that God chooses not to save a particular individual, leaving them to perfect justice. It is the kind intention of his will that lies at the base of his action of choosing a people in Christ. Um, so first off, this his view actually makes God abhorrent and unjust. I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw it out there. You do not have to agree or concur with me, David. But I will say this: if you are saying that God has the ability to save all, and that wow, God would save anyone at all. Well, if God has a kind intention of His will, and He is omnibenevolent, and He is actually truly all loving and all powerful, and that God doesn't need one's faith to choose him to save him, then it follows that God can save everyone, but chooses not to. And he says, quote, leading them to perfect justice. But remember, uh, earlier in this book, he defended total depravity, meaning that mankind cannot choose God. They're unable to choose God. So how is it perfect justice to punish a group of people who could not have done otherwise, and then choose to save others? It is it's nonsense. It makes God abhorrent. This is why I, a lot of people do not like when I say this. I have a lot of Reformed friends, and I know that they get all sorts of hairs raised when I start talking about this. But it's the logical conclusion to these viewpoints that God can save. He just chooses not to. They couldn't have done otherwise. He predestined and decreed that they could not have done otherwise, and he is casting them now into hell. Why? Because perfect justice for something that they could not have done otherwise? So anyway... Um, I digress. But any thoughts on that real quick, Paulman? Uh, no, not on that part. Um, oh, wow. Was, you don't even disagree with me. <laughs> I <don't>, Well, <laughs> for once, right? Right. That can happen. We can, we can agree. Fair. <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, page 176. Quote, the choice is wholly divine and wholly based upon the will of God for at the time of the election of us in Christ, nothing else but God existed. End quote. So it seems that White's point here is that the election must be unconditional because no one existed to fulfill any conditions prior to the foundation of the world. Now, in one sense, the proponent of corporate election agrees that the election of the group of believers was unconditional. So I don't have like any essential objections to reading Ephesians 1 as saying that election is unconditional with respect to the group that's chosen, as long as it remains conditional with respect to those who are in the group. But the conclusion that White is drawing simply doesn't follow from the fact that election is prior to the creation of the world. Simply because conditions haven't as yet been fulfilled, it doesn't follow that a being with perfect foreknowledge of the future cannot nevertheless act upon that foreknowledge. So I'm not claiming that Ephesians 1-4 teaches that this is what happened. I'm merely pointing out that Ephesians 1, 4 doesn't rule this out as White seems to think that it does. But if God, if God knew prior to his creative decree, what is that need? What is that knowledge based in, man? Yeah, where, from whence comes it? From whence comes God's omniscience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, shoot. All right. Um, if anyone doesn't know, that's a joke toward the grounding objection. Okay. All right. So. Um, and, and a dig at the way that White always frames the question. I from know. whence comes this knowledge? It's like, man, you can't just say, where does it come from, bro? <laughs> Look, man, 
As a former KJV onlyist, I, appre I appreciate the whence. <laughs> you like that whence language. Yeah, leave me alone. Um, actually, funny story. I was at church the other day, and uh, no, at the funeral, and there was this uh, whole thing about, you know, lean not into thine own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. But at least that's kind of like my non-KJV version, and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. And suddenly the pastor gets up there, he starts quoting it, and he wants us to quote it with him, and he's quoting some other translation. He's like, and he will make your paths straight. And I was like, I... I was doomed. I just like completely ju like jumbled the entire translation difference there. I was like, I don't know your version. I'm sorry. Okay. That is a free story free of, uh, yeah, whatever. Okay. So page 179, the ideas of grace and merit are mutually exclusive. He says his glorious grace was bestowed upon us. We did not earn it, accept it or merit it. And again, this is a false equivocation because no one says that we accept it or merit it or earn it. We say that God gave mankind a way unto salvation. That does not mean I merited it. However, I will argue this, that mankind being valuable as God's image bearers, as the prodigal sons who have run from his presence, that God desires us unto himself, and therefore he values us. So that's why he wants to save us, because we're his image bearers. Again, I, I don't even want to think about the hoops I have to jump through to say that we are his image bearers, yet totally depraved and can never do a good deed. I don't even want to know what sort of uh, hodgepodge you have to get through to make sense of that nonsense. But anyway, okay. Uh, and in ver uh, page 179, as with all this, this grace is only in Christ, here called the beloved. And again, nobody argues this, but... He does say this, because this grace is specific, efficacious grace, grace that actually saves, if it isn't, there is no reason to praise God for it. And I just have a big exclamation point of what? So if someone chooses God, suddenly there's no reason to praise him? Because it must be unconditional, efficacious, and specific grace that's irresistible, essentially, right? Well, if that's the case, all right, let me let me po posit you a question, Mr. Paulman. Um, all right, let's say we were on an Indiana Jones adventure, okay? I am Indiana. I am Indy because I'm cool. So you are my sidekick that nobody likes, okay? Actually, no, no, no. You can be, uh, what is his name? The little Asian kid in the second movie. Short um, round? Yeah, you can be short round. All right, so you're going to be short round in this scenario. That's racist. Uh, well, my wife's Korean. I have a free pass. So, uh, <laughs> all right. So we're running, and let's say the bridge that we're running on falls apart, and I'm running, and I get to the end. I turn around, and you're just dangling at rocks. You know, you're going to fall. And I go, David, take my hand. And now remember, I'm the one who chose to save you. I'm the one who turned around and noticed your need and saw and had pity upon your soul. I, even though you are way too young to be out with me on such an adventure, okay? You made bad choices, but I'm choosing to do this. I reach out my hand to you and I go, take my hand, David. And imagine if your response was no, because if I take your hand, then I'm saving myself. Nah, fam, you good. <laughs> and then instead I, pull you up from that 
And then you go, well, Will, you deserve no praise for that because it was not efficacious. You did not levitate me up there with your own mind. It wasn't unconditional. You required that I grab your hand. You didn't just grab me by the scruff of my neck and pull me up. So you don't require, you don't, you don't deserve any thanks. Wow. Wow. That's, that's really cold, man. <laughs> but does, does that analogy make sense? Because that's what always oh, goes yeah. through my, my head. It's like, wait, wait. So he does all the work for you. He's the one on solid ground. He's the one who does all the work for you. But for me to take your hand means I save myself. <laughs> make that make sense. <laughs> you can't. Anyway, um, now I know I'm now I'm probably going to get accused of being flowers again with my analogies. Um, so <laughs> um, anyway, the point is that there is reason to praise God, even if you have to make a choice. Continue, my friend. All right. Um, well, so my next note is on um, page 183 or page 182 did you want to get up to that point because i'm going to hit john uh oh do your thing yeah no you're good please go ahead that's actually where i had my next notes as well cool all right so yeah john 113 reads who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god and about that verse white says quote divine birth can have only one origin god it is not a matter of human will human decision that's page 182 so verse 13 cannot be divorced from verse 12, which reads, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So verse 12 says that becoming a child of God does depend on man's will or faith, while verse 13 seems to be saying that being born again does not depend on man's will. And so at a glance, that looks like a flat contradiction, right? Uh, but a closer examination of the verses reveals a solution. So verse 12 speaks of the power or right to become the children of God being given to those who believe. Verse 13 speaks of the actual process of becoming a child of God or being born again. Verse 12 speaks of something chronologically prior to verse 13. That is, after one believes, he is then born again by the will of God. No Arminian believes that man's choice to have faith is the instrumental cause of him being born again. The new birth is an act entirely of God, which he performs in response to man's faith. But faith alone does nothing. God must respond to faith in order for a sinner to be born again. This, I think, provides an adequate solution to the apparent contradiction and also demonstrates that John 1.13 does not mean that man's choice plays no role in whether or not he is born again. Now, in response to that, White asks, if a person can have saving faith without the new birth, then what, is the new, what does the new birth accomplish, right? It's page 185. Well, very simply, Mr. White, the new birth gives us new life and makes us a child of God, just as verse 12 states. It's worth pointing out that the verse does not say that we are born of God in order to receive him. Rather, it says that we receive him in order to become children of God. And as Dr. Brian Abasciano notes, uh, it, it, this is parallel with being born again in the passage. Uh, Dr. Abasciano says, quote, Becoming children of God and being born again are parallel expressions referring to the same phenomenon. It would be special pleading and a desperate expedite at that to argue that becoming God's child and being born of him are distinct in the Johannine context or that the text would allow that a person could be born of God and yet not be his child. So that God's act of regenerating believers, making them his own children, is a response to their faith, end quote. So 
well, you go ahead, Will. I know you oh. have thoughts on that. No, no, I, yeah, I mean, my thoughts are similar enough because, as you mentioned, as but as many as received him, so those who received him, okay, it's an act of choice, it's an action on people's parts. They received him. To them, he gave them the right to become the children of God. So, like you mentioned, this is speaking of the means by which one becomes a child of God is by receiving, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So they must receive, but then the, the if we could say regeneration, if we can use that term, happens by the will of God. Yeah. So again, again, you're, 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 I would agree with you, um, which happens a lot, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, one of the funny parts in here on page 182, he goes, he speaks of the reject by the, of the rejection of some and the acceptance of others. And I just put a big note in here, but it's not our will at all. That makes a choice. If we're talking about acceptance and rejection. Anyway, I know how he would define that and how he would get around it. I just think compatible compatibilist view falls apart on itself as well, but they were, um, all right. So, and then he, at page 183, he does, uh, he says that, it, uh, Spurgeon's uh, quote, this one kills me. Spurgeon's quote on John 1, 12 through 13 says if, and this is in the middle of his statement here, but as normal Spurgeon stuff is verbose, but he says, if it has been granted to you according to the power of the Holy Ghost, then it is such as shall surely bring you to heaven. The children of God then are heirs of promise, not heirs by merit, not heirs by their own will, not heirs by human power. The problem is here is that that language is not in the text. It's a reinterpretation of the passage. So um, that's throwing that out there. That, you know, just because you quote Spurgeon doesn't necessarily mean you're right, which I know you've mentioned a few times that is an over-reliance on other authors and thinkers. From his own tradition, yes. Right. Yeah. Now, now, while I think that distinction is actually sufficient to kind of preserve the Arminian view that man must exercise faith in order to be born again, uh, I think this whole way of approaching the text really misses John's purpose. Because John doesn't have any concern here with addressing whether or not man's choice is required in order for him to be saved. John's purpose here is to rebut common Jewish notions about how one uh, was to be saved, as well as to emphasize the supernatural cause of the new birth. He says first that they were not born of blood, uh, and there seems to be general agreement that this refers to uh, ancestry. It's understandable why John would feel the need to mention this, as many Jews believed that they were to be saved simply by virtue of their ancestry. So the verse is saying that ancestry is not the cause of the new birth. Then second, John says that they were not born of the will of the flesh. Now this phrase is a little more disputed, but many commentators agree that this is a reference to lust, adultery, or some other form of sexual immorality. So John seems to be saying that sexual desire is not the cause of the new birth. And finally, he says that they were not born of the will of man. And some translations and commentators understand the word here, uh, and I'm probably gonna mispronounce it, but uh, I think it's pronounced, uh, honor or honor, something like that. And, and it can simply mean father, right? Uh, in first century Jewish culture, you know, the father was often thought to be in charge of, you know, procreation. So John is also ruling out uh, marital sexual reproduction as being the cause of the new birth. Uh, and that's perfectly consistent, again, with the other two things that he says uh, are not the cause of the new birth. So the verse is teaching that God is the cause of the new birth as opposed to normal methods such as human ancestry, immorality, or marriage. 
So Robert Hamilton makes this point uh, particularly well in uh, response to th the same argument, but you know, not being made by White, instead being made by Robert Yarborough. Uh, but I think he, he sums it up pretty well. So Hamilton says, quote, Yarborough's assertion here rests on a misreading of the phrase, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, as referring to human-based attempts to obtain salvation. However, this is not the most straightforward way to understand the text. The contrast in this passage is not between two different means of attempting to obtain salvation, but instead between two different types of uh, conception. The human decision in verse 13 does not refer to any and all human decisions, but instead should be an, uh, identified with the immediately following phrase, a husband's will, which refers specifically to parental volition in bringing about physical conception. Identifying the two phrases in this way accords with the conventions of standard Hebrew parallelism. Consequently, the passage does not entail what Yarborough asserts, that salvation cannot be contingent upon one's faith decision. And just one last point, uh, it should be pointed out that if White is correct, that this is a reference to any and all human volition, then referencing both the will of the flesh and the will of man makes the verse needlessly redundant because one will is subsumed within the other. Oh, that's also a good point, that last part. I like that. No, uh, the will of the flesh is actually very, uh, very much idiomatic of what Jews would refer to as sexual desire. Paul does it the entire time. Uh, and also, what it's talking about, like, there's, like, sex, referring to sexual activity for reproduction, it parallels perfectly with the story of, like, someone like Nicodemus, how is one born again, right? And he's like, does one go back at his mother and he gets born again? Like, how does that, what are you talking about, bro? Um, it makes perfect sense. So uh, I'm actually very much inclined to that exegesis, actually, because I think it is more honest. And remember what I said earlier that sometimes reformed exegesis makes certain things more soteriological than they actually are intended. This is one of those great examples of that. Yeah. So um, it bothers me so much. I'll read like that's not what they mean by that, though. But once you start, the more and more I've studied first century Judaism, is when the more and more I've realized that. But anyway, we'll keep moving. We'll keep trucking. I'll let you keep moving forward. All right. Because I have, yeah, I have notes, but it, I don't think, uh, yeah, uh, being born is credited to, oh, yeah. When he says that, being born again, one thing, he's like, all human, he goes, the verb born is the aorist er, passive form. And it's content, again, nobody cares about the grammatical structure, bro. Um, I guess unless you're real nerdy, but in its context, it is plainly said to be an act of God. All human agency is denied. Um, no, being born is credited to God. That's what's being credited to God, it's being born again. Not that human will is not involved at all. So um, nothing is denied here, Mr. White, only God is affirmed. So continue forward. Acts 13, I know you wanted to sink your teeth into this one. Oh, I, I have specialized in this passage. So yes, Acts 1348. Um, yes, the, the Calvinist oh, darling. Hold, hold up. Someone spoke heresy. Jaden, did you really say David's beard is better than mine? You should in, just put like a put, put put like a vote in or put like a poll in the uh, in the comments and see if I uh, am deeply offended by that and I am never plugging your channel again. All right, bye. You're dead to me. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> all right, go ahead, continue. <laughs> that that is heresy, by the way. That that's genuine heresy. 
But yes, Acts 13.48, the darling passage of Calvinists. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So it's my position that appointed is a mistranslation of the verb tetagmenoi in this verse. The word primarily means to arrange, however, that would clearly be an awkward translation of Acts 13.48, right? Like as many as had been arranged to eternal life believed, doesn't make much sense. So the word carries the idea of being set, ordered, determined, or aligned. Uh, it could mean that God had determined these Gentiles receive eternal life, but it could also mean that the Gentiles were simply set in their desire or purpose to receive eternal life. They were in a position to receive eternal life. Now, interestingly, the grammar of the text does not favor either of those interpretations. Uh, according to some lexicons, disposed is a legitimate translation of the word. In 1 Corinthians 15, 16, uh, tasso, the same root word, clearly refers to a disposition of the inner will rather than some kind of divine appointment. So uh, while it's clearly not being used in the same way in 1 Corinthians 16 as it is in Acts 13, this does give evidence that the Greek word can speak of one's attitude and desire. So since the grammar of Acts 13.48 allows for the word to be understood as either appointed or disposed, we need to determine which interpretation, uh, which, yeah, which interpretation is best based on the context of Acts 13. So the contextual arguments in favor of translating the word as disposed are quite compelling. To see why, consider for a moment what is meant by a disposition. The word is defined as a prevailing tendency, mood, or inclination. A disposition includes several distinct elements, included but not limited to, one, a preparedness, and two, a desire. We might describe someone who is disposed as being both ready and willing. And interestingly, Acts 13 presents both of those elements. In verse 44, we see that there is intense curiosity on the part of the Gentiles, as the whole city is said to gather for the purpose of hearing the words of Paul. This suggests that many of the Gentiles were either prepared for eternal life by the words of Paul, or else had been prepared for eternal life by the working of the Holy Spirit. So that element of a disposition is clearly present in the text. Furthermore, verse 48 plainly says that when Paul offered the gospel to the Gentiles, they were pleased and they rejoiced and they praised God. That is evidence that the Gentiles already desired eternal life. And therefore, another element of a disposition is fulfilled. So given those facts, it seems evident that at least some of the Gentiles in Paul's audience were certainly disposed towards or ready and willing for eternal life. It's unthinkable that nearly the entire city would come up, and yet that none of them are just uh, are well, none of them are prepared to believe in Christ. Obviously, not all of them are going to be prepared to believe at this time. Only as many as had been disposed would believe. They wanted eternal life, but they didn't know it was available to them until Paul offered it to them. So, contextually, the translation "disposed" makes sense. So White offers two main arguments for preferring the translation appointed to disposed. Uh, the first argument comes from the fact that most Bible translations say appointed. He makes that argument on page 187 and 188. However, that argument is manifestly fallacious, for it is simply an appeal to majority. Pointing out that most translations have favored appointed is not itself an argument in favor of that translation. Translations are not authoritative, and the reason for the common translation, as appointed, is easily explained by tradition in translation. 
Again, Dr. Brian Abasquiano sums this up well by saying, quote, translations do not count as argumentation concerning the meaning of a word as if each translation is actually an argument for or against a particular meaning. A translation merely counts as a majority judgment of a translation committee, end quote. White's second argument for preferring appointed to dispose is based on Luke's other uses of the word tasso in the New Testament. He makes that argument on a page 188. Now, in contrast to the first argument, this argument is actually based on sound hermeneutical principles. When the meaning of a word is in question, examination of the biblical author's other uses of the word should always be considered. Luke, uh, yeah, Luke loses, uses, sorry, I'll get the word right. Uh, he uses that word or a variant of it in four places besides Acts 13.48. In each case, it would be absurd to translate the word as disposed. And so from this, White argues that a point is the best translation based on Luke's usage of the word elsewhere. Now, unlike that first argument he gave, this one deserves serious attention. The first point to note is that Luke's usage of the word is fairly sparse, as it's only used a total of five times. With so few total uses, it seems unlikely that we can be super dogmatic in claiming that Luke never meant disposed, even if he never uses it this way elsewhere. As Abbasiano says, quote, the smaller, uh, the smaller a sample of an author's usage of a word, then the less reliable that usage is for a judgment about how the author would use the word in any given instance. So, uh, end quote. This leads to the second consideration. Of the five total uses, only three are passive. This shows that Luke did not feel obligated to use uh, to use the word in only one way, uh, and thus, while pointing out that Luke's other uses do not mean disposed ought to be given due consideration, this does not decisively determine the issue. Now, this brings us to the final consideration. As noted, although the other uses of the word deserve to be examined, ultimately context has to determine meaning. We must always be wary of assuming that the biblical authors assigned only one meaning to the words they used. There is simply nothing in the context of Acts 13, which would indicate that Luke intended for the verb tetagmenoi to be understood as appointed, while there are strong reasons, which we've just considered, for thinking that he meant it to be understood as disposed. Indeed, the fact that the context of Acts 13 is so very different from the context of the other uses, that is itself a reason to suspect that Luke was not using the word in the same way. Perhaps it's worth pointing out that Luke could have easily used the word herizo, which unquestionably means appoint. Luke usually uses that word when he wants to say that God appoints something. Uh, Will, did you want to come back on any of that before I go into some of White's other uh, rebuttals? Oh, you're not coming through. I muted myself so no one would hear my nose whistle. All right, uh, before we move forward, uh, I, I have nothing to comment there because I actually agree with what you're saying. Um, I just wanted to make comment to two comments in our live feed. One, Gregory Cook, he also originally thanked us for taking the time to do this. But he goes, some of the discussions sound similar to what I have heard growing up in the IFB. Calvinism makes God into a monster, et cetera. I wonder if we, myself included, carry some angst with us from our former days. Um, this is actually something that I've been, uh, some people in the recovering fundamentalist community, of which we are currently associated with, um, we, 
have been accused of this before. Um, but the thing is that Brian, my co-host, believes the same thing, and he used to be a Calvinist. And I myself, uh, when I decided to rebuild my theology from the ground up, um, definitely looked at Calvinism because all my friends switched to Reformed theology, and I just kept reading it going, this is a big circle, circular mess and is problematic. And you have to keep in mind, I did was not raised in one of those evil Calvinism places. When I went to Bible college, I didn't even know what a Calvinist was. And I heard people talk about it like it was a bad thing, but I never even knew what it was. But come to find out, my my original pastor was what I call a Calvinian. Uh, he uh, um, actually did hold to some Calvinistic views, and I have a lot of friends of mine that do that. So my hostility is not because of anything I was raised in. It's literally, and it's not even like a hostility. It's just a, this makes no sense, and I believe that this is the conclusion. So some people don't like it that I will just bring it straight to the conclusion without always giving it a whole uh, dissertation as to why I believe that conclusion is true. But anyway, um, and that's mainly because I don't have time for a dissertation. And plus, what would the show be if I didn't just throw some spicy remarks in? But also, Dalton Blackma Blackmon, Blackman, I don't know, uh, asks, I love that, that thumbnail is awesome for his profile picture. Um, can you suggest a good article or a book that breaks down Acts 13, David? Uh, best I've seen is Brian Abascano's article. I think it's called On the Translation of Acts 1348. Uh, and I think that's the best article I'd point you to. He also has uh, a couple of follow-ups because James White has responded to Abascano's article. Uh, or no, sorry. Uh, Abascano did another article responding to James White's book, uh, the arguments he gives in his book. And then White responded to that article and then Abascano did a follow-up. He also has a dialogue with a Calvinist scholar, uh, and this is all available on the Society of Evangelical Arminians website. So yeah, it's four articles that uh, Dr. Abasciano has where he really goes deep on the passage. Uh, Abasciano is, you know, world-class uh, New Testament scholar. He's an Arminian, and uh, his work is, best. in fact, my notes here, I really drew a lot on his work uh, for that. Cool. Perfect. Thank you, sir. Uh, now, with that being said, I'll go ahead and let you, uh, I just, I, I think you're probably going to eventually, oh no, you're going to go into more arguments with White on Acts 13. So go ahead. <laughs> this is, this, this passage is my baby. So yeah. Um, yeah. So here, this will be a fun one. White argues that the paraphrastic construction of this phrase must be translated as a pluperfect. And that's on page 189. Now, a pluperfect is a perfect past tense, which denotes that an action was completed prior to a past point of time. In this case, the disposing was completed prior to the believing. Now, listeners may have noticed that I preferred the following rendering of the verse. As many as were disposed to eternal life believed. However, a pluperfect translation would look like this. As many as had been disposed to eternal life believed. So clearly the disposing to eternal life happened prior to the believing. Moreover, since uh, the verb is in the passive voice, it follows that the Gentiles were passive while being disposed to eternal life. And from this, White argues that the translation disposed is incoherent. Now, before addressing that argument directly, let me point out that it's simply not true that uh, a paraphrastic construction must be translated as a pluperfect. It must be construed as a pluperfect, but it need not be translated that way. Pluperfects are often translated in the simple past tense. So therefore, if uh, we judge that disposed is the best translation of the verb in this context, then there's not any reason in principle that we can't translate it as were disposed in the simple past tense. 
But, uh, you know, I'm willing to grant the point. Turning to the main argument, it's simply not true that one cannot be passively disposed towards something. You know, the passive voice does describe a subject as acted upon, but the passive voice allows for the subject's own involvement and indeed their own participation. Just consider a few examples, right? Those who had been disposed towards the Democrat, uh, sorry, let me try that again. Those who had been disposed towards the Democratic candidate voted for him. The man who had been disposed towards marriage proposed to his girlfriend. The students who had been set on passing the class took the test. The child whose mind had been set at peace fell asleep. In all of these examples, we see that the subjects were acted upon by external factors in the past, which had results that led to their own actions. While the pluperfect translation may be slightly more awkward than the simple past tense, it most definitely does not render the phrase incoherent. The pluperfect paraphrastic construction simply does not, uh, it just means that they're disposed prior to believing. And Arminians have no problem with that. So despite James White, uh, you know, making these sorts of odd claims, um, he basically says that this disposing would have to, quote, take place at the very point where the apostles quote from Isaiah and proclaim that the Gentiles can receive the blessing of the gospel. And that's on page 189. Yet why should Arminians accept that claim? The disposing could have happened through a plethora of factors preceding the offer of the gospel, most obviously Paul and Barnabas' preaching, prior to the offer to the Gentiles. Now, White has one more bullet to fire at the proposed translation that I'm offering. He claims that translating the verb as disposed is inconsistent with the biblical teaching of man's depravity. He writes, quote, The difference was not that some were better or more disposed towards the gospel than others, the very idea of being disposed towards the gospel is utterly contrary to Paul's teaching in Romans 8, 7 through 8. The difference is that some were appointed to eternal life as part of the eternal decree of God, end quote, page 189. In other words, if man is totally depraved, then he cannot become disposed towards faith in Christ. The problem with White's argument here is that it's circular. He has assumed that unconditional election is true, and therefore only those who have been chosen by God will be regenerated so that they may believe. But Arminians do not share that assumption. Although we heartily agree that man is totally depraved, God does not leave man in his helpless or fallen condition. God enables men to believe and to be saved. This is the doctrine of prevenient grace. Defending the truth of this doctrine is a project for another day, but for now, all we need to establish is that the translation disposed is not incompatible with the doctrine of total depravity because God can enable sinners to believe and draw them to himself. And those who respond to this grace can rightly have been said to be uh, disposed towards eternal life. That was a mouthful. But you're still muted, Will. That was right, a lot. You. Yes, I'm not used to muting myself on my own show. Uh, <laughs> I'm used to me being verbose um, in my other in my other episodes. But no, that's perfect. I think that's great. Um, in fact, uh, we had a commentator say, if you could memorize all of this perfectly, you would shred white to pieces in a debate. Uh, it, it, that's his that's his view. So, um, and right. notice, notice his profile picture is white in the in a little hat, like a little thug life hat. I like it. <laughs> I like it. I love what people do with the internet. Somebody did that with me, uh, with like, I've made a pro, a fake Twitter account with my 
profile out called the IFB most wanted list. <laughs> uh, all right. So go ahead and let's continue on since we, I, I went longer than I've wanted to go on some of these parts. So I'm going to go ahead and let you just truck through what you want to, and then we can get to chapter nine. All right. I'll try to go through these next ones fast. Um, Matthew 11, 25 through 27 uh, says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of the heaven and earth. Uh, you are. You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal him. And about that verse, White says, quote, It is to the elect chosen in him before time began that Christ makes this wonderful revelation of the Father. End quote, page 191. Now, there are several problems here. The verse does not say that the Son chooses to reveal the Father to the elect. The text doesn't actually specify to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. The text turns out to prove unproblematic for White's Calvinism, uh, but why does God have to hide things from those who, according to White, you know, can't believe anyway. So I'm sorry, the, the, the text does prove problematic for White's Calvinism, because we can ask, why does God have to hide things from those who, uh, according to White, can't believe? This statement makes no sense if Calvinism's true. Now, on the other hand, the text works rather well with the Arminian doctrine of provenient grace, because the Son can choose to reveal the Father to whomever he wants, which is ultimately everyone, like in John 12, 32. Now, conversely, those who reject God's grace will have that grace removed, and consequently, things will be hidden from them. So that verse fits perfectly well within the Arminian system, and it creates some problems for the Calvinist system. White well, uses John 5, 21. For just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. And White argues, quote, it is a free act of the will of the Son that brings life. The Arminian would have to limit this to saying that Christ freely wills to save based upon the action of faith in man, page 192. But how exactly is the Arminian limiting anything? The Son wishes to give life to those who believe, and nothing in John 5.21 contradicts this. Indeed, we can prove this conclusively using John 6.53, which explicitly states that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have, get this, no life in yourselves. So, according to this verse, one must first eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood, and contextually that refers to having faith, before one will have life in them. So, what follows from these two verses? Christ gives life to whomever he wills, and he wills to give life to those who believe. You had thoughts on that, Will? I was just going to say cannibalism. I was just going to be snarky. Keep going. <laughs> All right. Uh, finally, White goes to Romans 8, 29 through 30, right? I just so, don't understand why you wouldn't let that text speak for itself, you know, but continue. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm done. Uh, the so-called golden chain. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, uh, he also glorified, right? Now, White makes much of the fact that the verse speaks of God acting and not man. And that's pages 195 through 196. But literally no one disputes that God is the one acting here. The debate regards whether God's actions are conditional or unconditional and in what sense. 
So in verse 28, Paul refers to the called according to his purpose. White correctly notes that the word his does not appear in the Greek, but has been supplied by the translators on page 196. However, he incorrectly insists that God must be the one acting here. In truth, the Greek doesn't say this, uh, and the context doesn't demand it. Ben Witherington observes that the text could just as easily mean that they were called according to their purpose or called according to their will. But of course, there's really no way to know. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't want to be dogmatic that that text is supporting free will. But the point is, it, it could go either way. Now, White basically equates foreknowledge with predestination in Romans 8.29 by defining foreknew as God's choice to love certain people. The argument is that the Greek word translated as foreknew has connotations of choosing. White argues that the Old Testament Hebrew word for know, yada, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, can mean to choose. Now, the Septuagint frequently translates yada uh, as ginosko, which uh, is no in Greek, and again, my pronunciations may well be off. Uh, but that's the root word for proginosco or foreknowledge. So from this, it's argued that foreknew means to choose to love. Second, White points out that in other New Testament usages, the object of God's foreknowledge is of uh, a person or a people, but never of an event. Now, White's partially correct in that foreknew probably has connotations of affection, acknowledgement, and even relationship. However, importing the idea of a choice into the word is not warranted. Uh, the Hebrew yada is used about 770 times in the Old Testament, and it's translated as ginosko about 500 times in the Septuagint. Of these, uh, well, of those usages, Calvinists can only offer a few examples where the word might mean to choose. The strongest possibilities being Genesis 18, 17 through 19, Jeremiah 1, 5 through 6, Amos 2, uh, 2 through 3, and Hosea 13, 5. However, even though the word choose could work, it's not, necess it's not necessary in any of those texts. It's, it's just not required. And of those four passages, the Septuagint only renders yada as ginosko in one of them, being Amos 2, uh, 2 through 3. So that makes it unlikely that Paul is equating foreknew with forechose. Taken as a whole, the evidence in favor of seeing foreknew as primarily referring to a choice, it's just very underwhelming to me. It seems to me that the most reasonable way of understanding this passage is through a corporate view of election. This reading understands the objects of God's foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification to be believers. Observe that the context of Romans 8 is specifically concerned with the body of believers. Paul has a corporate group in mind. So let me just briefly explain how I understand the terms foreknew, predestined, and called. If I can find my place in my notes, that is. There we go. All right. So the reading, well, the reading that I would propose, the corporate reading, would see the foreknowing uh, as an act of prior acknowledgement of believers by God of his people. Note the plural pronouns that Paul uses, those whom he foreknew, these whom he predestined. That describes a group. B.J. Oropesa says, for the Romans who knew or for whom Paul is addressing, the individual is elect by participating in the elect community in Christ and the assurance of final salvation given to that community pertain to the individual as long as that individual is identified as belonging to the elect community. 
The corporate reading sees predestination as God predetermining a glorious end for his people, the body of believers, by removing predestination from the individual and applying it to the church as a group. This reading understands that individuals only become predestined by being a part of the community of believers. Predestination, therefore, is not unto faith. Those who have faith are predestined unto conformity to the image of Christ. Uh, and then finally, on the what calling refers to here. Uh, it's unfortunate in my view that many uh, Calvinists and indeed most Arminians understand Paul's doctrine of calling to be a reference to a divine summoning. Calvinists tend to equate this with regeneration and irresistible grace, while Arminians tend to see it as a general gospel call. But both understandings are wrong. The evidence is quite strong that when Paul speaks of God calling people, he refers to a divine naming of believers as God's own. And that's significant because although this understanding agrees with Calvinists that the calling is effectual, it differs radically from the Calvinist doctrine and that it understands the calling or the naming to be conditional upon faith. That's helpful. Also, William Ragel down there says, can Will please figure out how to not have his mic feeding static into the stream? First, I've heard of it. I just pulled it up on my phone. I'm not hearing any static on my end, so I don't know what's going on there. So if anyone else does have that problem, let me know and I'll try to figure it out. Um, otherwise, real quick, um, I really enjoyed that, by the way. Um, so one of the things that he sees, to, uh, uh, he also sees to misunderstand uh, Geisler in chapter eight on divine simplicity, because he's saying that God doesn't really necessarily think he has to like, he just knows, so God knows all things. Um, but I don't have time to get into that too much. But in page 198, um, he kind of gives a list he of various things of foreknow. He be, says that the, uh, the primary passages that uh, that should inform our understanding. It's like, what primary, uh, uh, my first thought was, based on whose authority are they the primary? <laughs> Uh, primary uh, authority. I don't, primary passages. That doesn't make sense. Then he also pulls from different authors, like he pulls from Romans uh, Romans, and First Peter on how this wor word is used. And one of the other things, I'm like, well, they're different authors, probably with different contexts. You should probably double check those. And for knowing a person does not negate choice. Uh, if I put chocolate or a piece of broccoli in front of my daughter and I tell her to eat one of them, she can only choose one. I know for a fact, I foreknow that she's going to choose that piece of chocolate that does not negate her choice. Um, so God foreknowing. And then, as I said, the corporate view, which is what I hold to, that God, if we could say, uh, predestines the bus, not the passengers, um, that's also helpful. So, um, and then I decided to make another dig at from whence does this knowledge come from, grounding objection, because he pulls from... Uh, um, Jeremiah 1.5, you know, before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. He goes, this knowledge of Jeremiah is not limited to time. In some manner, God, uh, God knew Jeremiah before Jeremiah came into existence. And I just have a cheeky little note here of, from whence does this knowledge come from? <laughs> so I just find it funny. This is what I mean, though, like, uh, as far as somebody who says they can't stand inconsistency, uh, it, it kind of annoys me when it becomes a true for me, but not for the scenario. But all right. Um, one of the things that pleases my OCD is where we're going to move forward next. I'm not going to give much of my view on Romans 9. I, uh, I have, we're planning an episode where we're going to discuss Romans 9. I'll kind of tell you my cursory thought of Romans 9. But chapter 9 in, uh, in White's book is admittedly and appropriately responding to Romans chapter 9 uh, of how CBF goes about it. Pleases my OCD. I enjoy that. 
Um, but with that being said, I will let you take it away here, and then at the end, I'll kind of give my very cursory understanding of Romans 9, and then we'll wrap up shop. All right, sounds good. And I'll, I'll recommend just some resources here, because as you said, we're not going to be able to give like a full exegesis of the text, you know, in the time that we have here. So for people who want like a full exegesis of the text from a, you know, non-Calvinist, basically Arminian perspective, I'm going to recommend some resources, and then I'm just going to you know, go after White's most salient points in the book. Uh, so first, uh, this book here is God's Strategy in Human History. Uh, it's kind of a hard book to find, but it's so worth it if you can find it. it just It's great as a precursor to a study on Romans 9. Uh, there's just so much helpful information here you know, regarding Paul's thoughts, context, and things of that nature. So if you can find that book, I recommend it. Uh, an introduction to the corporate theory of election uh, and how it applies to Romans 9. I'd recommend Robert Shank's Elect in the Sun. Uh, for a little more developed view on the corporate understanding, I would point you to The New Chosen People by uh, William Klein. For a really thorough classical Arminian exegesis, which does actually not rely on corporate election, but is still actually a very good uh, analysis of the passage, I'm going to recommend Leroy Fourline's the quest for truth. He's got a 50 page chapter in here, just exegeting Romans nine. And it, it really shifted my perspective on it. Which you kindly gifted me a copy of that. So I appreciate that. You're welcome. Uh, colleague of four lines would be Robert Piccarilli. He also has uh, a commentary on Romans where, you know, he gives a, a good analysis of Romans chapter nine, uh, two volume here uh, from Jack Cottrell, uh, he gives one of the most thorough analysis of that chapter that I've ever seen. Uh, and it, it appears in the second volume. So if you just want the analysis of Romans 9, then you'll want volume 2. But um, overall, it's, it's a very enjoyable commentary. I always enjoy Jack Cottrell. He's, he's a fantastic writer. Uh, ben Witherington. Paul's letter to the Romans, good scholarly resource. Uh, I always enjoy Witherington. He's not real thorough on Romans 9. He's not like primarily interested in rebutting Calvinism, but uh, he, he does definitely take some shots at them. And I always enjoy Witherington. This one's kind of hard to find, but if you can get it, Vic Reasoner's uh, Fundamental Wesleyan Commentary on Romans. Uh, Jonathan Pritchett recommended this one to me. He described it as the unsung hero of Romans commentaries, and he's, he's quite right. Um, it, it is good. And he, he interacts with White directly in this book. He takes on White's arguments. Uh, so Vic Reasoner's big commentary on Romans. And, of course, the... Um, absolute best from the Arminian perspective is going to be Brian Abasquiano's three volume uh, trilogy, basically of Paul's use of the Old Testament in Romans chapter nine. Uh, the first volume is available for free online. Uh, unfortunately, the other two are kind of pricey, but so worth it. Uh, it's the most detailed scholarly work on Romans nine to date, and it is fantastic. So I cannot recommend those works highly enough. Very good. I appreciate that. Well, with no further ado, we'll, go we'll ahead get and in, do yeah, your we'll, thing. We'll get into White's arguments here, yeah. So uh, he says on page 207, quote, Paul is not talking about nations, and he is talking about God's, God's sovereign election and salvation, end quote. So yes and no. Paul is talking about the nation of Israel, but he is discussing how national Israel fits into God's plan of salvation. 
White seems to misunderstand the corporate election interpretation of Romans 9 when he says, quote, the Arminian response is internally inconsistent. When does the passage make this grand leap from nations to persons? Page 215. So corporate election agrees with White that individuals are chosen for salvation. Corporate election disagrees with White in that it does not hold that individuals are chosen primarily. Rather, individuals are chosen secondarily by virtue of their connection to the elect people. So on this model, God chooses a people group, namely believers, uh, and individuals can decide if they're a part of that group by choosing to believe. So the number of the elect changes according to corporate election. The elect just are believers. There's nothing inconsistent about that. On the topic of Jacob being chosen over Esau, White claims, quote, there was nothing in the twins that determined the choice, which is the point of stating that the pronouncement was made before the twins had done anything good or bad, end quote, page 200, uh, yeah, page 208. Uh, and then he includes a long paragraph from John Piper making essentially the same point. Now, it's been pointed out that the personal salvation of Jacob and Esau is not in view. God's decision was to appoint Jacob as a patriarch. Uh, but Paul is still using this story as an example of how God chooses people over others. White and Piper take the reference to the choice occurring before either had done anything uh, to be conclusive proof that the choice in salvation is based on nothing in the individual. But that doesn't logically follow. First, it overlooks the corporate aspect of God's choice here, right? God is choosing one people, Israel, over another people, Edom. We even see that back in Genesis 25, 23, right? Who says that uh, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Paul specifically quotes that verse in Romans 9.12, and therefore he understands his point to be understood in light of this verse. Not insignificant is the fact that the individual of Esau never served Jacob. Thus, God's choice regards which people group would be the recipients of the promise. Uh, and in using that example, Paul is teaching that God's choice here regards which corporate body he will save, not which individuals, right? Or not, not primarily, right? We understand that. Uh, you know, corporate bodies are comprised of individuals, but God is choosing individuals with respect to their association in a corporate body. Paul says nothing about God choosing individuals to be placed in either of those corporate entities of, um, of individuals. So uh, moving on then, we see that this brings us effectively to another point. Paul doesn't say that God's choice of who he will save is not based on anything within the individual. Rather, he says that it's not based on any works that the individual has done. He makes that crystal clear in the very same verse, saying that the choice of Jacob over Esau was made so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, right? Romans 9, 11. So what is the significance of this choice being made prior to the twins doing anything good or bad? Well, it was not based on works. It does not follow from that, however, that the choice was based on nothing. White makes much of Romans 9.16, which says, So then it does not depend on the person who wants it, nor the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. And he takes this verse to rule out the need for any sort of human choice or response in election, saying, quote, 
we truly must ask if this passage does not deny to man the all-powerful position of final say in whether the entire work of the triune God in salvation will succeed or fail, what passage probably, uh, sorry, possibly could. That's on page 210. Putting aside that Arminians don't really believe that man has the final say, or that God can fail, since we've already dealt with those misrepresentations, the question we want to ask is this. What the verse said, or rather when the verse says, it does not depend on the person who wills, what does the it refer to? Does that refer to the ground of election or the application of election to the individual? Does the way in which God chooses to save not depend on human will? Or does the individual application of election not depend on human will? Calvinists will want to say that neither of those depend on human will. Arminians hold that the ground of election does not depend on human will, but we believe that the application of election to individuals does. Which does Paul have in mind? Well, the answer has to be determined from the preceding context. So far, Paul has not discussed the personal application of election to the sinner. He's simply discussed God's right to institute election however he wants. Verse 16, then, is a reference to God setting the terms of election, not the application of election to individuals. No Arminian believes that God's choice to save whosoever will depended on a human choice. We believe that God's choice to save all who believe was fully his own without an act of the will on the part of mankind. White makes much of God hardening Pharaoh. Now, there's much ado about whether or not Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. Fundamentally, this doesn't really matter because everyone agrees that Pharaoh was in a state of sinfulness and rebellion long before God hardened his heart. So no matter who initiated the hardening, it's not unconditional. And therefore, White doesn't have an argument from unconditional election on that front. Uh, a few more points on hardening. First, hardening is not the direct opposite of mercy. The two words are not firmly opposed. I'm not saying that hardening is not negative or that it's not an act of judgment. Uh, but I am emphasizing that because God intended the hardening uh, for the greater purpose of showing mercy. Right. Paul goes on in chapter 11 to explain <clears throat> the purpose. Uh, the purpose of hardening is to extend greater mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may have mercy or that he may show mercy to all. That's Romans 11.32. So the unbelieving Israelites are being hardened by God because of their rejection of the gospel. And uh, that's essentially causing the Christians to take the gospel elsewhere, right? Paul says, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles in Romans 11.1. 1. Now that leads to the next consideration, which is that the hardening is temporary. Paul returns to this topic of hardening in Romans 11, where he says uh, of Israel, I say then they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? That's Romans 11, 11. So Paul clearly doesn't think that this hardening is eternal or permanent. And finally, we should mention that harden is a bit of a misleading word. The word translated as harden, it can actually mean to strengthen. And the word carries the idea that God is emboldening Pharaoh. Uh, we could think of God as strengthening Pharaoh's resolve. And that, by definition, would mean that there had to be a resolve for God to harden. White's only response to this is that the reading, reading this as strengthened makes no sense here. He argues that on page 222. But clearly it does make sense. 
Pharaoh is an illustration of what was happening to Israel. Just as God had strengthened Pharaoh's resolve to not let Israel go, God was allowing Israel to continue down their self-chosen path of rebellion. And that is what Paul is teaching here. White revels in Paul's stern rebuke of his interlocutor in Romans 9, uh, Romans 9, 19 to 21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does the potter not have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now here, White thinks he has the Arminians stumped, for surely the answer to why God finds fault is due to their free will, if Arminianism is true, right? Uh, however, Paul simply compares them to clay on a potter's wheel. So in order to understand the question that Paul is trying to answer here, it's important to remember what prompted that question in the first place. The fault is, of course, unbelief, but Paul has just gotten through explaining that God has hardened the unbelieving Jews in their unbelief. So then how can God blame them for not believing if he's removed their ability to believe? Paul's objector is asking how he can be held responsible for his failure to believe since God has hardened him in his unbelief as part of his undefeatable plan. This is an objection to the ignoble purpose that the Jews are serving in God's overall strategy. Paul responds by challenging his objector's right to object to God's plan. Paul makes his point by comparing his objector to a pot challenging a potter. The potter clay imagery is not intended to convey that man has no more freedom than a pot does. Paul's quotations come out of Isaiah 29, 16 and 45, 9, where we read, Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That, uh, that, that which is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. And then, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker an earthenware vessel among, uh, oops, sorry, among the vessels of the earth. We lost David. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, hold on. Hold on, technical difficulties, I'm sure. Give me one second. Holy dead air, Batman. Uh, can David rejoin is my next question. Um, hold on. Apologize, guys. Uno momento. That's the first time I've ever had that happen. That's hilarious. Alrighty. Well, that was that, that was predestined. That was predestined. Probably God trying to sabotage you for speaking against Calvinism. I'm sure. Who am All I? Right. Who am I to speak back to God? Yeah, you shut up, Clay. <laughs> As you were saying, F. Clay, see, that's a good segue. Check that out. Set you right up. Yeah, I was at, uh, yeah, Paul's quotations and I say, uh, um, basically the passages are uh, clearly not saying that people cannot resist God, only that people are foolish to do so. Uh, so th that's Paul's intention in verse 20. 
the reference is to the potter's absolute right over the clay. And that's not intended to communicate uh, God's absolute power. It's intended to communicate God's absolute wisdom. Notice in Isaiah, the emphasis is on how foolish the clay is to argue with the potter. He's not saying that the clay has no ability to argue with the potter. So by comparing them to clay, Paul isn't intending to deny their free will. He's just uh, trying to illustrate that they have neither the wisdom nor the right to challenge God's plans or purpose. Moving on, White utilizes Romans 9, 22 through 24. The verses say, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not uh, from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now here, Paul has those who are not saved in mind as vessels of wrath, and those who are saved as vessels of mercy. And two questions arise. First, how did they become vessels of wrath and mercy? Second, in what sense are they prepared for judgment and glory? Now, we'll consider both of those in turn. First, how did they become vessels of wrath and mercy? Well, the Calvinist wants to maintain that the selection of who is a vessel of wrath and who is a vessel of mercy is unconditional. They ground it in an unconditional and eternal decree of God to save some and damn others. However, such an interpretation makes nonsense of the passage. Why, for example, does Paul say that God endures the vessels of wrath with patience? Paul's language in these verses is the same that he used back in chapter 2. There Paul said, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's in Revel or, sorry, Romans 2, 4-5. So Paul has already told us why God endures the vessels of wrath with patience. God endures them with patience so that they can repent. This is not unconditional election, for if God has already chosen who is a vessel of wrath and who is a vessel of mercy without regard for anything that the person has done, it's senseless to extend grace to that person, which is intended to lead them to repentance. Thus, people become vessels of wrath or mercy by their choice, you know, with respect to how they respond to God's grace. One's status as an object of mercy or wrath is not fixed. That conclusion is further strengthened by looking at 2 Timothy 2.20, where Paul says that a dishonorable vessel, uh, or rather that if a dishonorable vessel cleanses himself, he'll be a vessel of honor. Paul believes that the status of a vessel can change as a result of their choice. Uh, again, Ephesians 2.3 says that believers were objects of wrath, yet became children of God by grace through faith. So we do see that the status of these vessels is not fixed. Uh, and this leads us to the second question, which is if being a vessel of wrath or mercy is contingent upon a person's choice, then in what sense are these people prepared for destruction or for glory? And we have to first understand that vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy are corporate categories, right? God has prepared the corporate body of these vessels of wrath to destruction and the corporate body of vessels of mercy to glory. This observation is further strengthened when we consider, you know, Paul's olive tree illustration in Romans 11, which is that people are grafted into the people of God or broken off based on whether or not they believe. It's quite clear that Paul doesn't does not have a corporate body in mind there because he's referring to branches in the plural and that they're grafted in or cut off in direct response to their faith. 
they are the only people, uh, well, rather, they're, they're only the people of God by their association, in essence, with the tree, the olive tree. So when comparing the olive tree illustration of Paul's comments regarding the preparation of vessels of wrath and mercy, it's clear that people are not prepared for destruction or glory individually and unchangeably, rather by one's own response for or against Christ. And that's essentially why one is part of the people of God. Uh, we also have to note Paul's deliberate contrast between the ways in which the vessels are prepared for destruction as opposed to those prepared for glory. Ultimately, this is an important detail. It, it, it doesn't carry into the English, right? But in the Greek, the vessels prepared for glory are said to have been prepared in the active voice. This means that God actively prepared them for glory. However, the vessels prepared for destruction are said to have been prepared in the passive voice. The contrast between the preparation of these vessels is significant because it means that they're not prepared in the same way. And so I think I've rambled on quite a quite long enough, but um, yeah, basically Arminians can read Romans 9 without a problem. Right, which is what I was letting you do. I was like, just go ahead, because I know it's a singular thought flow, um, and because you are the representative of Arminians in this group, and I'm, you know, there's a lot of Arminianism I have. Uh, I, <laughs> like, but... I don't care. Label me however you want. Um, but, you know, uh, I will just qu quickly give uh, my cursory view is I believe that and right off the bat, he makes it very clear that he's talking to Israelites. So there is a corporate idea here. You know, my kinsman, according to the flesh, he goes on and he actually kind of, I believe a big chunk of it is Gentile inclusion in salvation. Uh, that's a big that's a big theme here because he's like, hey, just because you're not all are born of Abraham or of Abraham. Not all of his seed are, are of God's seed. He continues forward. And then when he talks about Jacob and Esau, he is quoting from Exodus, I mean, Exodus, from Genesis. Um, and if you read Genesis 36 and 37, he literally says, uh, Esau, who is, which is Edom, and Jacob, which is Israel. Uh, and so he, like in Genesis 36 and 37, it clarifies that, hey, I'm speaking about these individuals, but I talk about a corporate group here. So it is consistent in Romans 9 to view this with a corporate view of Gentile inclusion and, uh, put, and he's pushing against Jewish exclusivism. So I think that it, that is a quick teaser. I'm not going to get too much into my view because we are pretty far into time and I still have to spend some time with my family. Um, but... The thing is here is we actually, I do have an episode coming up with this with my friend Jordan. Uh, Brian, I think, is going to try to join us for that discussion. I'm hoping Jordan, uh, uh, not Jordan, but Brian will be feeling up to it uh, at that point um, with everything with his family. So uh, with that being said, I, I mean, obviously, we can't cover literally everything in this book. Uh, so we have to take excerpts, much like how one would do a movie review. Uh, otherwise, this would be much longer than what it already is, especially when you have to set up a bunch of external context to address it. So, um, so an active regeneration as opposed to being regenerated before, as many say, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I deny that regeneration precedes faith. Right. So, um, cause I believe it's simultaneous. I, there's nothing in scripture that tells me that that mechanism is one prior to the other. Um, but that's my view. I don't know what your view is, but I'm not sure if we have time for that. So anyway, uh, with that being said, David, do you have any closing thoughts on this? Because we have one more review after this. Yes, we do. No, I mean, this was, this was the big one of, uh, you know, where, where I, I was saving my thoughts on the biblical passages for these two, which is why, you know, it's good that we 
block these two chapters off. Right. Um, well, I had to skip a, even my own notes, but yours I thought were thorough enough where I was like, no, I want to make sure you get your thoughts in here. Yeah, I mean, unconditional election, that's, to me, that's what Calvinism hangs on, is uh, if, you, if they lose unconditional election, they don't have a leg to stand on. I think it's where their strongest arguments are. Like, um, I think biblical texts, I think they, they don't have to be read that way. They can be read better in other ways, and I've tried to present why. But, um, yeah, so basically, if you can show that unconditional election is not justified, the rest of the points are going to fall. I mean, there is no biblical support for limited atonement. There's no biblical support for irresistible grace. There is definitely no biblical support for perseverance of the saints. So, I mean, it all really, those are just entailments of unconditional election. Mm -hmm. And if we can show that that point doesn't fall, as I think we have, then Calvinism falls. And so that's why I've really tried to make that the focal point of my studies. I really like that. No, that's solid. Um, as I said, unconditional election. In other words, man is not worth saving. Uh, that's my new hot take for today. Someone can have fun with that. So anyway, hope this was helpful for somebody. Uh, if you haven't already, like and subscribe to the channel or give us a bunch of dislikes and hateful comments in, uh, down below because we all know we are dying to get everyone's approval on the internet. Um, so with that being said, uh, David, thank you so much. And did you set, uh, kick off a new podcast recently? I did, yes, the Christian Evidentialism Podcast. All right, so Christian Evidentialism Podcast, go check that out. Um, and with that being said, everyone, thank you for hanging out. And uh, yes, Alex G., I think David said he would willingly uh, debate James White. So I think I'm up that... for it when he is. All righty. With that being said, guys, take care and God bless.